Hi, Michael. Thanks for joining me today, friend. Hey, Tashin. Thanks for having me. So uh, I know we'll end up talking about good things like climate and Alexander technique, but I would love to start with the most important topic, which is uh, talking about Anjuna and EDM. And I would love to hear <laughs> how you got into all that stuff. Yeah, sure. I mean, first of all, I'm so happy that I've got you into it as well. That's such, such a, a win for my year, I think. Yes, you, <laughs> um, very, you've gotten me very into it. Excellent. So I guess for those who haven't um, heard of Anjuna Beats, it's the record label, um, which I love. They're created by my favorite band, Above and Beyond. And my, my origin story, I guess, discovery story with Anjuna was I was at Glastonbury Festival, which I don't know if you've heard of. It's like a big festival in the UK, five days long in a field. Um, and it was my first time attending the festival, uh, going with some new friends who were a you know, friend of a friend. And it was the last day of this five day festival. And this new friend, Kev said, oh, hey, above and beyond a plane. And I'm like, who? And it's like, do you like trance? I'm like, yeah, I, I like kind of edm -y stuff. It's like, okay, you have to come, you have to come, you have to come. And it was the last set of the, the festival. And just to give a sense of the context behind this, it's all outside, like you camp, and there's nowhere to sit down except the ground. And it was a rainy year. So we were walking around in like big leg, like Wellington boots for five days, only sitting in the tent and just absolutely ruined, basically. I was completely exhausted. It was hard to move. And I was like, ready to go home. And then Kev said, okay, let's do above and beyond. And the music came and I was like, I have found my people. I have found the music I've been looking for for so many years and like this is it and ever since then i've gone to all all kinds of like, above and beyond gigs and the and wider and juno gigs as well i flew to prague to go do one of their um live shows uh, abgt 350 that one was and i've got a bunch of my friends into them as well saying hey hey try this hey listen to this hey i think you'll enjoy this so now all my friends are into it as well it's fantastic mm -hmm. how would you describe sort of the uh like ethos of the the whole above and beyond and Andrew and like what appeals to you about it because I mean I, yeah how would you describe that it's very like earnestly lovey I think something like that it's like you go into the the gigs the concerts and they have these screens up and they so one of them I think Parvo types messages in like right uh, real time as the gig is going on and it's stuff like look around, um, hug your new friends, or we are all we need, and life is made of small moments like this, and that kind of thing. It's a very, and the lyrics of the songs are very much, um, almost like emotional processing, I want to say. It's like kind of giving you an opportunity to go and access love, grief, loss, excitement, all these kinds of emotions that don't often come up, or you don't like, give yourself a chance to go into. And the lyrics, are, they're usually quite cheesy, but they're still enough for you to connect with. So the vibe is very much like very friendly. It's very much about connection. There's a, a term for people who go to gigs with your around the world with Anjuna family. So you, you've met your Anjuna family, you go to the concerts with them, you maybe fly around the world with them and that kind of thing. Um, and it's just one of, yeah, it's, it's one about love and connection ultimately. Cool. Cool. Well, I've so enjoyed listening to their music and cool. <clears throat> really appreciate you introducing me to them. It's been a definitely a highlight of this year. So thank you for that. No worries. Well, for the for everyone else listening, um, Tashin asked for a podcast that would make him feel a certain sequence of emotions. And I was like, oh, oh, a playlist. I can, yeah, I can, a playlist. Yeah, I can make yeah. this. <laughs> I've got something uh -huh. for you. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's just so much fun going, okay, you want these emotions in this order. 
and then ending with an almost climax. I'm like, yeah, okay, I can I can order these songs based on everything just and Juno. It was fantastic to really good fun to do. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you included that um the piece at the end as well, like a, oh, a couple yeah. of days later, the uh and and I will kiss piece because well, one, it's just such an epic track, but um I've really loved like learning about that track and how it was created. Nice. And I didn't know about the Olympic ceremony. So uh, and I ended up including that um in a recent piece about collaboration because it's just such yeah. a like magnificent story of collaboration so mm. um yeah thank you for that as well no yeah. worries, i'm pleased you like it um yeah so maybe you could uh i would love to just hear from you like who you are and and what mm. your sort of story has been uh in whatever detail or length you'd like to share how you got to mm. being here today yes yeah, it's a, it's a funny story because it's changed quite a lot in the last year or two. So I guess the, the my origin is I grew up not far from London here in the UK, um, had a fairly normal um, life. I was very left-brained, um, very kind of, I wouldn't say rationalist, but rational in my way of thinking and seeing the world. So that means I, I studied physics, university, and then spent 10 years in low-carbon energy innovation and climate tech and that kind of thing. Um Along the way, I had a go at a startup. Um, I did some freelancing stuff. I was like, I was interested in the whole gig economy thing from an early age, but my 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 view on the world was very scientific, uh, materialist kind of perspective. Then in 2014, I stumbled into this thing called Isan Technique, which I'm sure we'll touch on at some point. Um, and I was like, oh, this is this is interesting. <laughs> this is uh, a, a new dimension of life. Um, and that kind of became a parallel part of my life from 2014 until, uh, well now. Um, so it was quite a fun experience, um, managing, working for big corporates, doing energy innovation while also doing this slightly hard to describe thing on the side. Um, and yeah, I guess the, the, the things happened in the last couple of years, a couple of months and years is that I, I quit my job to do this thing full time and step fully into the creator economy, um, which has been a lot of fun. Um, I've condensed a lot of stuff there, but that's the general shape of, of my, my life until now. Yeah. Can you tell me more about what the sort of like climate part of your career involved and, and what that was? Yeah. So I guess it's best to describe it in terms of management of low carbon tech innovation. So I never worked in actually developing technology. I worked in various, um, various contexts that would help accelerate the progression of technologies along the innovation chain from the early stage R&D through to full deployment. So that was in consulting. I, my, the main thing I did that had the most impact, I think, was a company called National Grid, um, which is a transmission system operator, kind of the, the balance of supply and demand of power in the UK. My job there was to design innovation projects that would help them do that, that balancing job more effectively in the future. So I never actually worked on the tech, but it was kind of how do we, what do we invest in? Um, what things are most valuable to reduce climate impact, um, to make the grid more efficient, all that kind of stuff. Um, and along the way, I also co-founded a nonprofit called the Carbon Removal Center, which um, the idea is to help accelerate the removal of carbon from the atmosphere. And actually that started, and I missed a funny point in my story. My first job um, slash kind of post-university thing, um, I worked at an organization called the Royal Society, um, where I worked on the, the governance of the research of solar radiation management. 
And what that means is solar geoengineering, the reflection of sunlight back into space to reduce the effects of climate change, or the warming effects in particular. So there's normally, like, people think of mirrors in space, ultimately, kind of a big space mirrors up there, reflect the sunlight, call the Earth. There's a wonderful um, Simpsons episode where I think Mr. Burns blocks out the sun, um, that kind of vibe. Um, that's not how you would do it, um, but same kind of idea. And ever since then, I've been interested in kind of the the non-traditional interventions that could be done to to ultimately reduce the effects of but in my view long-term thing we should be aiming for is to reverse climate change itself so done a few things around there as well does your work in the climate uh sector leave kind of a case for climate optimism in your mind i think so um i certainly act as if it does so I don't think we're past any particularly terrifying tipping points, so there are some probably coming up. Um, and there's a lot that we still can do. So, so far, most of the efforts of humanity, if you like, have focused on what's called mitigation. So reducing the emission of new carbon into the atmosphere. We've done some work on what's called adaptation. So, you know, new insurance products, floods, um, defenses, that kind of thing. Um, but we're really missing um, restoration so kind of putting things back to how they used to be and if in fact improving them further and then the emergency button of geoengineering if we need that um but i think we still have time we still have technology we still have scope to do things that can move us away from the two plus degrees of warming that i think we're we're now looking okay we are now looking like we're going to hit two degrees but there's still plenty that we can do to avoid going beyond that um, it doesn't look like we're acting fast enough, but I think if you look, um, if you look around, you do see kind of signs of hope. So new carbon removal um, initiatives are popping up all the time. There's a lot more money going into mitigation, that kind of thing, and people are kind of waking up to the fact that these things are an issue. There is some interesting human psychology around climate change. So the fact that your impact doesn't translate to um, actual effects and that the effects are delayed against what people do. Um, but it seems like the last couple of years of extreme weather and general noise making of advocacy groups and that kind of thing have been waking people up to the need to change. And I think once there's enough people who want to make that change and there's enough political will, which seems to be growing, then things can happen very quickly, I think, and the technology is improving. So it often looks bleak. I think sometimes I feel like it's bleak, but at the same time, there's a lot going on um, that we can still do um, that can not just put things back to how they were, but can go beyond... And what I think is important is to restore and enhance natural systems. What kind of, um, yeah, can you give me a little bit more detail about what kind of interventions those might involve? Mm. So at the carbon removal um, scale, and the reason I picked that one is that the other areas are kind of, they're more easily done. I mean, as in we know what the answers would be. Actually doing them is hard. So we'd need to say fully decarbonize heat in the UK and decarbonizing heat is very difficult, um, but we know that that needs to be done ultimately. Um, and there are initiatives going ahead. But in carbon removal, there are, there are different technologies that you can deploy, different ways of thinking about it, which I think um, point to a deeper philosophical um, approach behind this. So for example, you could plant lots of trees right you can stop deforestation and do what's called afforestation so plant loads of new trees and that kind of thing and as they grow they absorb carbon that's a really good thing to do but it's also not enough unfortunately 
because the carbon math doesn't work out. You can also do things like wetland restoration, rewilding, sustainable agriculture, um, regenerative agriculture. Um, you can deploy artificial trees, which are just these like enormous um, machines where air passes through them and carbon um, gets absorbed from them. Each of these only have different proponents. Um, so people who are like the ones who prefer hyperloops and hydrogen cars and that kind of thing, and like, yeah, science, they prefer artificial trees. And then you get other people who are like, well, let's focus on the natural systems and do um, soil restoration. And ultimately, all of these things need to be done. Um, but I'm just really excited by the, the diversity of pathways that are available to us. And the fact that this topic seems to be focusing people's minds on taking action. So we can all agree that something needs to be done. And in this, and it's uh, the domain of carbon removal, we already know that even if we stop emitting all carbon overnight, we're still committed to a certain amount of warning, warming. So we have to go not just to zero, but negative for a while to reset to how things were. So we can all agree that whether it's um, planting new trees, whether it's improving ecosystems, whether it's artificial trees or whatever else it might be, the technologies can overlap and play a parallel role, but we can all get behind the need to actually go ahead and deploy these things. Um, at the meta level, almost. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it's it's nice to ask about because uh, I think I've been sort of steeped in climate pessimism for a while, and uh, I think there's a case for that. But it's it's nice to hear a different account, and like you know, I don't think anybody knows for sure what's going to happen. And as you say, there's a lot of sort of options and different. Mm pathways and interventions and so on. So it's nice to hear about uh, a different possible route from you. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm pleased. And it, it's interesting answering that question because I'm, you didn't, I didn't name any one particular technology. It's like, I'll be fine because wind power or because yeah, algae or something. I didn't say that because I can't, like you said, there's no way of knowing there's no silver bullet ultimately. I guess what I'm encouraged by is seeing climate change is becoming more of a forcing function, more of a kind of an organizing principle that people are finally rallying around in a useful way. And that's what gives me hope, not the some of the numbers that we see in the reports or this new innovation over here in isolation is the, is the mindset behind it of, mm. okay, let's just get on with it now, ultimately. Totally, totally, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, right. Hmm. Yeah, I'd love to shift gears and ask you about the Alexander Technique, and, and maybe you could just start by describing what it is uh, for those that might not know yet. Yeah, so the best way I found to describe Alexander Technique in this kind of context is to reference that Viktor Frankl quote. So between stimulus and response there of the space, um, and in that space lies something, something, capacity for growth and freedom. And I recently found out actually that Viktor Frankl never said that. Um, it's been misattributed to him the whole time, but everyone knows it as him, so let's go with it. So let's say stimulus and response, and then space between. Alexander technique is a way to notice and then expand and live in that space between stimulus and response. That's actually one of the core skills of AT, it's called inhibition, is noticing that you could respond in a habitual way and then choosing something else instead. The the frame for this or the context for this is that we we do things that we don't realize that we're doing. We pick up a lot of habits and our functioning, our, the way that we use ourselves is unconscious in many ways. So Alexander Technique is a way of bringing consciousness to all of the things that we are doing and then learning how to 
constructively not to do them. Um, so it, it ties in a lot with cessation, non-doing, and there are some intersections with spiritual practice as well. But purely at the, the experiential level, it's, huh, I noticed that I'm doing something I don't want to be doing, or didn't realize I was doing, and that thing isn't good for me, or I don't think it's helping me. That's one level. And another level is actually being able to not do that. So Alexander himself, when he realized of his backstory, he lost his voice as an actor and then developed it while figuring out how to get his voice back. He realized that he was doing certain things to himself in the speaking context. He was, he was pulling his neck back and down and putting pressure on his larynx. And even when he knew that he was doing that, he saw it in a series of mirrors, he couldn't stop himself from doing it. And whenever he tried to stop doing it, he just made it worse even. So he had to learn a new way of consciously doing, doing cessation, we can put it that way, or stopping the thing he was doing, which was not a normal um, thing he had access to, if you like. There was no button he could push that would stop. Ultimately, he had to learn how to push that button and where, how it worked and that kind of thing. So yeah, Alzheimer's technique is a way of consciously improving our functioning by noticing and stopping doing things that we don't want to be doing. What did your training in AT involve? Oh man, <laughs> so I had very, very unconventional training. Um, okay, some, some backstory here. Like most AT teachers and training courses look the same. They are three years long, they take 1600 hours and they're part-time. Um, so it's very difficult for someone like me to decide I'm gonna go off and become an AT teacher because it requires a fundamental reshaping of your life ultimately. So you can do that for three years. I would never have done that personally. So my training, um, very unconventional, was part-time, evenings and weekends only. So I spent one month, a, one weekend a month for three years and then a series of evenings and some trips away and that kind of thing. And the actual experience of it was the most free-form, non-coercive, non-directed training experience I've ever had, ultimately. So two examples that I'll, I'll bring here. So. My teacher, Peter Nobes, um, would get us at first juniors, junior trainees, and we would work one-on-one -on -one with him in front of the group of trainees. And we would get direct education that we do at tuition, and then others would pick up kind of what's going on and kind of learn by osmosis almost. He'd call those masterclasses, and they were really good, really helpful. But then we'd, we'd be sent off into group practice. And I'm not kidding, but the kind of prompts that we get are go and play with freedom and aliveness and, and I kind of report back go and go and play with freedom to not freedom from these things and it's like uh, okay um sure <laughs> let's go and do that um and the thing is it actually made sense it worked so you can go and put your hand on someone's back or neck or something and play with freedom and aliveness and embody that and and communicate that and listen for that and that kind of thing and change the way you're being in a way that does actually make sense and just to add here, like it was very peculiar doing this alongside working in energy innovation consulting for a big corporate <laughs> because I'm like, why am I, what am I doing? This is, this is a, just a very different thing. But it really helped me like having those two worlds because I was very much the empiricist of the group. So when, when someone said like, oh, you know, this happens and this happens, I was like, well, let me, let me test that theory. Let me go off and like design my own little hypotheses that I could test and see what happens. Often I just didn't even say I was doing this, I was just in my own head and then say, well, I, I played with this. And, and I guess 
without even realizing I was playing into the training modality of like go off and play with X and see what happens. I thought I was being kind of all clever and sciencey, um, but that's exactly what we're being asked to do. So yeah, very free form, very open, very fun, very much find out for yourself kind of kind of uh, frame. Can you say um, what, I, I wanna talk about how your online course was developed, but I would love to hear more about kind of the, the precursors in um, Alexander technique and how it's taught of like, what would it, what would an in-person training involve that is sort of like based mm -hmm. in of being in the same location with someone and, uh, physically close to them and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. So if you came in for an in-person lesson, well, I guess there's, there's two ways of thinking about this going, to, I'm not going to talk about the conventional traditional approach because I've had less experience with that, but let's say you came to teach, came to see one of, um, my, my group ultimately we would probably first of all do some kind of physical um i don't want to say intervention but there would be i would put my hand on your neck um on your back or something probably make a small adjustment between the relationship between your skull and your spine ultimately um it kind of looks like like this um in a in-person context and this switches on what alexander called the primary control which is a term he got from, I think, a, a different anatomist at some point. Um, he was a long time ago now, so he's nothing up to date, unfortunately. Um, and this is a thing that theoretically all animals have. It's a coordination mechanism. It's the thing that you see in wild animals, let's say a, a, a kind of a, a, a large cat when they're hunting something, one of the uh, panther type things. They're, kind of, they're very much in this kind of tracking, switched on, fully coordinated by the thing they're hunting mode. And that's the thing that largely we have switched off in our day-to-day -day experience, kind of this, this slumpy hunched thing. Um, and most people come into a lesson in their outside slumpy hunch mode. Um, unfortunately, there's no way out of this directly because if you recognize that you're slumpy hunched, then you're thinking, okay, well, I should be up here, right? And then suddenly you're in slumpy hunch mode, just holding yourself up with muscle. <laughs> so what we show people how to do is we, we guide them into this new experience. We show them this way of being and then play with various things in that frame. So conventionally it would be sitting and standing or picking something up or that kind of thing. My teacher likes to play catch, but the, the whole, the whole frame of it is noticing when someone, how do I frame this? When someone stops taking responsibility for themselves and steps out of direct experience. So let's say I said playing catch or something. It's very common for someone, for the teacher to throw the ball and then to, for the student to go like, like start coordinating the catch. It's like, it's really important that I catch the ball and that kind of thing. Or even when you drop the ball going, oh, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to do that. And then, you know, all these extra things were laid on. And the teacher's job is like, why, you know, why are you doing any of that stuff? This is the least important thing you'll ever do. Is what Peter always said to me. Like in this room, there's just you and me, no one's watching. It doesn't matter if you drop this ball and yet you can't stop yourself from kind of apologizing and scurrying to pick it up and then kind of acting out, throwing it back again, all that kind of stuff. So it's very much tuning into the students, um, their own subjective experience, almost their own qualia and saying, Hey, where have you gone? Hey, you've gone somewhere. You've got in your head somewhere. You're not fully present and bringing them back over and over and over again, using various different tools. It might just be say, Hey, keep looking at my eyes while I throw you this ball. It might be inviting them to pay attention to the space around them, all that kind of stuff. But it's, it almost feels like magic when it's done to you because the teacher will say like, hey, where did you just go? 
And when you're when you are off in your head somewhere, and someone pulls you back into the present moment, there is a bizarre experience of yeah, I was somewhere, I did just go somewhere. But you never notice this on your own, because whenever you come back, you kind of forgot that you were gone somewhere, you kind of come back naturally. So to have someone kind of reach in while you're gone and say, Hey, kind of come back. It's like, well, okay, that's weird. And then you kind of learn how to do that for yourself over time as well. Um, so yeah, that's a, a lot of words, but kind of roughly the shape of the thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what does, uh, how does your coursework and what, do, what does it teach about Alexander technique? Yeah, so my, my course obviously doesn't have the benefit of hands-on one-to-one <laughs> um, work. Uh, so I can't give people that experience. I can't put my hand in their neck and say, okay, this is the thing you're looking for ultimately. Um, but what I've what I learned from my training was that when you were in this mode, there was a particular experiential uh, thing, um, an expansion of awareness ultimately. And this had a couple of characteristics. So first of all, you can be aware of the world in all dimensions, in all directions. It's all there at once and you're kind of in the middle of it. Whereas normally we kind of narrow down a little bit, like I would narrow onto the screen and narrow onto you and like just forget the world is there almost. So that expansion happened. But not only that, there was a vividness to it. So the world seemed brighter, more colorful, more, more just tangible. There's more depth to it, just more realness, I guess I want to say. And that stuff is almost like a side effect of the hands-on work in most methods. We use it more directly in my training. Um, now, I realized after a bunch of experiments online that I could point people to that stuff in various different ways, whether on Twitter threads, which was surprising to me as well, um, calls and even on recordings. So now what I do is say, hey, there's this dimension of experience to do with your awareness that you might not know about. Let me show you some characteristics and effects that seem to be common to most people. And then once you've experienced and seen these things, show you how you can start applying this stuff in your own life. And then I invite people to treat their own lives as dojos ultimately. So now you know this stuff exists, go off and see what happens, which is very much like how I trained in, in the training center. Is there a skill tree for learning Alexander technique or the way that you're structuring the course? It's a really good question because I'd love to know if there is. Um, some people get it way more easy than other people. Um, so Nick Camerata um, from Twitter, like he took the course and then I, I saw him as wonderful. He was just like tweeting for a few days about like how he was walking around and like magic was happening. It's like, this is great. So he clearly had some on-ramp uh, that helped him get it. And I think there's something around existing mindfulness experience um, so he's done thousands of meditation hours. Um, there's a certain level of being embodied. So I'm not, you don't need to be fully embodied, but at least having access to interoception, uh, internal sensations is useful. Um, having some language around, um, you know, attention, awareness, the fact that these, these qualities exist and are not strange. Um, and I think, again, mindfulness training gives you that. And I think there's also some philosophy that comes in as well. So for some reason, critical rationalists seem to get this stuff as well. And I spoke to Luli um, and you know, Luli, I, we, we had a few Zoom calls um, early last year and then she wrote an amazing essay on the thing. Um, I was like, okay, clearly you have some kind of prior you know, like 
jigsaw pieces <laughs> that fit together that I'm saying to make this easier for you. Um, but I'm still looking for what all those things are ultimately. I'm not entirely sure. Um, that makes sense that like having prior experience in these things would be really helpful. And, and certainly that was my experience, um, you know, taking your course. Um, if like, how, how did you structure what's in the course to like, like sequence it? And, and in terms of um, like, if someone did have that kind of on-ramp, like what would you want to take them through? Yeah, so the structure of the course was, it was built around a series of Zoom calls I did basically. Um, and I'll share this stuff for any like aspiring course creators. Um, I'll, I'll say that like AT is the very last thing I would have picked to make an online course about. And you've taken it, you've seen the kind of stuff that's in there. It's like very subtle points around awareness, which is not something I'd ever want to do online. Um, so I basically, the, the, the story was, I did a bunch of Twitter threads, people were interested and I was like, okay, I'm getting lots of questions about this thing. And I want to just, I had an experiment of like, I'll do some Zoom calls. I had a week off work. Let me just fill it with Zoom calls and do like a series of intro um, explainers. Um, and some of them went really well, some were appalling. I was basically playing with different ideas. But the more I did it, the more I found that the, the call format converged on a common, a common journey, if you like. And then I kind of got bored saying the same thing over and over again. I was like, oh, I can just re kind of record myself saying these things and people can do that. And then I can go deeper and expand it and that kind of thing. So that's how the course evolved. But the shape of the the, the calls and the, the, the course is similar. So first of all, like I point out certain elements of experience. So the first one is kind of expansion of awareness. And I use stuff like kind of, I'm using mostly audio prompts because people tend to be looking at the screen and you can look at the screen while also being aware of stuff at the same time. So the, the one I use in the course is, hey, if there were an aircraft going overhead, just check that you could notice it. Um, and the phrasing there is important because it's not actually go and listen for the aircraft or the sounds don't matter. It's opening yourself up to the availability that there could be things in that direction that you could notice, whether that's the thing there or not, not actually listening for aircraft, but it's like, hey, there's stuff that could be in that direction. There's stuff that could be in that direction and this expansion happens. So I open up that expansion. I then do a couple of tricks on people. So I, I kind of collapse it on purpose and say, hey, look, this thing that could be expanded can also be collapsed and look how easy that can be done. Um, and then from there, I teach what's called inhibition through the, the collapse and conscious re-expansion of, of uh, awareness. There's other stuff I want to get into around primary control, which is way more difficult to, to switch on um, in an online format. I will figure it out. Um, but uh, yeah, that's the general idea. And then I've laid in a bunch of other stuff around mindset and experiments and kind of exercises and stuff. But that's the that's the core of the journey, if you like. I'm getting a sense there that like, uh, hmm. Yeah, that there might be a kind of skill tree that involves, you know, as priors, things like body awareness and yeah. exposure to concepts like attention and awareness, that those kinds of things are maybe not strictly necessary, but useful. And then once someone's sort of in your course that there's like expanding awareness and then there's, um, you know, inhibition, as you said, and then, uh, yeah, like at some point uh, getting to the primary control bit. Yeah. Um, does that does that sound like an accurate summary of what you're saying? Yeah, I think so. 
um, there are some people for whom it doesn't make any sense. And mm -hmm. this, this applies as much in, in person. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm reassured it's not just my teaching. It's also mm -hmm. that some people can come in for a lesson and just they think they're having their bodies reorganized. And it's almost like a treatment. Um, the way my, my teacher frames this is like, and anyone, anyone who comes in, it's like, yeah, I'll do the whole body stuff. And then, hey, there's a Zen garden over here. Um, and they'll go away and come back next week. It's like, okay, all that stuff. Hey, there's a Zen garden over here if you want to go have a look. Um, and some people get to Zen, as he, as he puts it, other people don't get it. Um, I don't yet know why. It might be lack of those priors. It might be trying too hard. A lot of this stuff, you can get caught up in map territory conflation. And the more you realize that you're stuck, the more you try and you kind of look hard at the map, <laughs> ultimately. Um, the, the frame I use for the entire course is that wonderful essay um, from Slate Star Codex um, on getting out of the car, ultimately. Um, Universal loves the cactus person. Um, so, you know, you, you, you drive all the places um, and then you realize the places that can't, you can't go, you've got to get out of the car, but you've been in the car the whole, your whole life. So like, what button do you have to push to get out of the car? Or you just get out of the car? Well, how? You just you look for more buttons. Like, this is that. This is exactly the same thing. The harder you try to get out of the car, the more stuck you are on the car, ultimately. So all of this is showing people how to get out of the car. Um, some people, I think, are not ready to. Some people are not willing to or they just don't want to you know, just, you know it's not the thing they are uh available for in their lives and that's fine but one of the reasons i want kind of this lifetime resource is that hey it's there for you when you want to like have these ideas in your awareness somewhere huh? and then when it's the right time they'll be like oh yeah that, that course now seems relevant let me go have a look at it now there's no forcing there's no kind of i want people to have an experience i want people to kind of come through it and evolve for them on their journey ultimately. And you've started adding these sort of uh, what you're calling like power packs of like different themed yeah. focuses on different skills. Can you talk more about like what you've made so far and what you're hoping to make in the future? Yeah, sure. So I did. So the first one is um, I called it social and speaking skills. Um, and the reason that I, I thought about doing this is that AT is very much done in activity. So even in, in most conventional lessons, you'll go and then the teacher will say, so what do you want to work with today? And that might be picking up an object or sitting down or standing up or whatever it might be kind of, yeah, it's, it's all very much like, let's pick a day-to-day -day thing that you can do. And AT in itself is almost devoid of content. It only really makes sense once you apply it to doing stuff like the dishes or going for a walk or walking the dog or whatever. So I wanted to add a series of these power-ups to give more concrete examples of the things that you can do with this stuff or the, the places where you can practice and then to pull out some of the benefits. So I picked speaking first because I did an online course called Ultra Speaking, which, by the way, is awesome. Um, and I realized basically that what they're pointing at is exactly the same stuff that AT is pointing at. Getting out of your way, speak without thinking, letting the creative parts of you come up without interference, um, doing less and achieving more, that kind of thing. And I thought, okay, cool. Well, if I can create something that that kind of gets to those same points, then... I think it's just helpful to give people the sense of like there's something you can do with this. If you go through my course, like you have to come up with your own examples, your own lifestyle things. If I say, well, when you're talking to your partner, when you're doing public speaking, when you're on a Zoom call, all of these things, it makes it much, much easier to kind of like, oh yeah, keep my awareness expanded while talking to someone and see what happens. It's much more, um, it's more fun and and it's an easier way of playing, I think. In terms of next ones, I think creativity is a big one. I'm really excited about creative process when it comes to getting out of the way, which is what AT is about. Um, and at some point I will do movement. Um, 
because that's where IT comes from ultimately. But I, I want to learn a lot more about anatomy and body mechanics and that stuff. And I, I always say it's not about posture. It's true, it's not about posture, but at the same time, it's a huge application area where it's mostly done. So I want to upskill myself in that domain and then I'll do that power up. Uh, that makes sense. And yeah, I'm, I'll be really curious to see uh, that one and any other upgrades you make in the future. It feels like, uh, I don't know, taking the course for the first time really did feel like, uh, uh, yeah, like it rewired things for me. So uh, it's, it'd be nice to have more of that kind of thing. So I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear more about that, but you know, you're the one asking questions, so. Oh, well, sure. I'm, I'm, it's, um, I mean, I, I think, and this was my intuition for being interested in the course in the first place was like, it wasn't so much that, um, you know, yeah, like I'd been exposed to expanded awareness type stuff before, and it was, it was not something I hadn't heard of, but I just really liked how you talked about it. And there were some specific things that, um, yeah, had had a really big shift for me. I think um, probably the the biggest one was um, it was like I could already get into an expanded awareness state, and it was easy to do that. But then, how to sort of more consistently be in it? And mm -hmm. you gave specific advice about like how to return to it, and it was sort of like. Um, yeah, I forget exactly how you put it, but it was like, if you've noticed that your awareness has contracted, just like expand it again and then just for a few seconds and then you can decide what to do. Mm -hmm. And um, you don't necessarily have to stay in the expanded awareness, but just like that'll give you the option to decide what you want to do. And yeah. uh, for whatever reason, it was like the, the specific instructions you gave in the next few days, it was like very easy to um, keep re-expanding my awareness and then that's that's become to my perception like more or less automatic at this point where right. I, I it's it's more often than not expanded and then uh if it contracts i notice it very quickly and just go right back and yeah. um i think yeah actually i think having a lot of experience with like concentration style practice has been helpful because um i can make use of that with this sort of specific use case and like stay mm -hmm. on, keep my focus on having my awareness expanded. And I just kind of get that built in for free. So it, it's just like, I'm yeah expanded most of the time. And um, yeah. And then the other, I mean, there were a couple of other really cool things of like um, trying the Vishnu hands thing for the first time. Right. And like, I, that's still something I want to explore more, but it's sort of like um, for those that don't know, it's like, uh, finding a new way to make motions where you sort of set an intention to move, but you're not causing it to move. And then it can sort of like move by itself. And uh, as I've told you in the past, that's had some really interesting like blends into my Tai Chi practice. And right. uh, especially for things that are like, cause each week I learn like a new move in the Tai Chi practice. And there have been a few sequences that are like, especially difficult for me to sort of absorb. And then uh, I found myself applying that there and, and the movement sort of came more naturally. And, um, yeah. And then, and then I'd say like, just in general, there's a lot of, um, sort of like interesting stuff about, uh, when you use those skill sets in mm. specific situations, like, yeah, like interacting with people or on the podcast or, uh, you know, various circumstances. And it, um, 
that's always the most interesting thing is like what comes up when I have more options from expanding yeah. my awareness. Yeah. Nice. Cool. No, I'm pleased to hear. Yeah. It's it's funny, like I think one of the skills that you clearly have is is mindfulness, obviously. So you can notice when your mind is off somewhere, you can the ability to notice in the moment is there for you. And most people don't have that, I found. So when I trained, it was oh yeah, this thing is great. Of course I'll carry this into my life. Like, sure. And then within an hour of leaving the, the training center, I'm like, oh, it's all gone, thinking about work and whatever. And the, 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 the meta mindfulness of like checking that you're mindful almost was not there. And that's the thing that I cultivated and that AT cultivates is that constant meta awareness of how aware am I in this moment ultimately? What am I aware of? And that doesn't impinge on concentration. It just means, huh, I'm aware that I'm concentrating right now. <laughs> I'm aware that I'm aware of that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And that's the dimension that AT gets to that I think a lot of people just don't have from day-to-day -day experience because there's no need to have it. We just get hooked on things really easily. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah, that mindfulness definitely helps. And uh, interesting, it sort, it sort of like deepened my sort of standards for what being mindful are. And like, I have a, a continual sense of like, yeah, this could keep deepening. Like I have a sense of what it would be like to be even more mindful, more continuously. And, uh, that's, that's sort of something I'm always trying to go deeper into. So, um, I think these skills really are like mutually reinforcing. So yeah, if someone had a different skill that would be useful for bringing in and, oh, like the, lo the love and kindness is useful as well for just like, yeah. uh, just like blasting myself with love. If, if I've like, uh, <laughs> you know, something awkward, like actually earlier in this podcast, actually, um, for the first like two minutes, I had the setting on wrong. So it was just showing your face and I was like, oh, I need okay. to change it. So it's showing both of our faces for the video. And it's just like, oh, oh yeah. like this is not the end of the world. No one's going to care. Like Michael's not going to hate me and just like radiate love towards myself. And, uh, <laughs> you know, th that's sort of like an interesting fusion of, of the two of like having the awareness and it's, oh, this mm. is, the setting is wrong and then I will blast myself with love and so on. That's, yeah. It's such a great example, right? Because in that, in that context, you were aware of the fact that the screen setting was wrong. Mm -hmm. You were aware of your own judgments towards yourself and there were judgments going on. You were having the conversation and you were aware that matter was an option for you and that you could do matter and then you did matter. Yeah. While also other stuff as well, while yes. still having attention on me, like that's kind of yeah. cool. That's really a useful <laughs> skill to have. And I didn't notice. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yes. Uh, that happens often during this podcast. I don't know. Like yeah. I'll, uh, my, my inner experience during these things is, is fascinating to me. So just like different voices that come up and like concerns yeah. and I'm just like loving on myself and like treating the different parts and still being aware of the conversation and yeah, talking totally. to people. So yeah. And this is why I think awareness is such a valuable thing, because if you're so just to bring us on the AT frame, like if your awareness is collapsed and you don't notice those things, then you can't uh, respond in any way towards them. So like let's say you're there is a part of you that's upset or judging you or feeling sad that you got made a mistake, but you don't notice that. It's not like it isn't there. Mm -hmm. It's just that you're not noticing that it's there. You just feel bad for some reason. So you can't relate. But if your awareness is expanded, I don't just mean outside down there. I also mean in like psychologically and internally and all that kind of stuff. Then, oh, look, there's that thing. It's not taking up all of my experience, but I can relate to it while I'm doing other stuff as well. So mm -hmm. when I'm talking now, I often see different ideas for things I could say popping up in my head because they're coming from somewhere that isn't me. 
Um, and I'm going like, no, no, yeah, that one maybe <laughs> kind of thing while still talking. Whereas I think, again, a lot of people just like, they get stuck thinking through what they're going to say next while they're speaking and they get some stuck or they, they land on the first thing that comes up and then they get stuck on that or they had a bad morning and that gets them stuck, you know, these things. So awareness gets you the, the, the chance to get unstuck from all of these things, to get unhooked from all of these things that might get in your way. I just think it's really cool. Yeah, definitely. No, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. Um, that, and that's part of why I wanted to ask as well about sort of the skill tree is because I, I have, mm. you know, I've asked you about this recently as well, but just a sense of like what things I have learned from your course and what I haven't and kind of want to like map that territory so I can <clears throat> dive deeper into this stuff. So, you know, the, the primary control, for example, I, I don't think I've mm. gotten the hang of that. And, um, you know, the inhibition, I, I sort of figured out, like I, I watched your section on it, but then like it just sort of like, learned itself not from the course yep. just from practice so mm -hmm. uh but the primary control i don't i don't think i have a handle on that yet so i'll be curious to see what you develop with that yeah that one let's see if i can add live on that slightly um, okay but the, the the primary control is like it's the naturally switched on aliveness that we all have access to but that isn't always on and you'll often see at teachers using metaphor here um, and actually there's a, there's a discussion we can have here. So one of the most common examples is to imagine a, a thread on top of your head kind of pulling you up kind of thing. I dislike this <laughs> because first of all, like imagining is going off imagining. Like you got like, oh yeah, there's the, there's the golden thread pulling up my head. And like, you can see what's happened here to me, right? I'm no longer yeah. talking to you. I've, I've cut off imagining something. Um, so I don't like that. I use a similar thing in my course around um, just knowing there's a gravitational field pulling you up. Um, but again, I think there's the same kind of stuckness that comes up. So there's two things to say here. One is that a lot of the stuff I point to is what I call sub-visualization. I think someone in my, my course forum came up with the term, which is where like you can just flash the idea of something. So you can flash the idea of there being a force pulling you up. Or you can go off and imagine the, the the visual thing that goes with it. And I'm talking about the flashing, the just knowing the thing, as opposed to creating visual images in your mind. Um, and this, I don't see this talked about very much um, in other literatures. The idea that mm -hmm. no, you're not visualizing, you're just activating some circuit, ultimately, even pre-visually, pre pre-conceptually, it's just switched on, you're available to it. Um, some people get that, some people don't, unfortunately. Um, but the, way, the other thing I want to say is that how I'm playing with primary control now is like you right now are not a crumpled mass of bones on the floor, right? Even though there's gravity pulling you down, you're still clearly upright. And your body has evolved in the context of gravity always being down. And so it has this natural way of holding itself up. So you don't actually have to hold yourself up with gravity. Your body is naturally upright. You just have to stop interfering with that process. So a way I'm playing with it now is, yes, recognize that there's this downward pull, that you're being pulled towards the earth, that the earth is supporting you, and that there is this corresponding upward flow of, of muscle support, of however your evolutionary system has designed you to be, that is floating you up um, in opposition, balanced to this gravitational force. And whatever that upward thing is, that's the primary control. And it is related to once you fully accept gravity, 
once you fully like believe that you are being pulled down and then also supported by then you can get into this thing hmm. the issue is when it's like okay i'm being pulled down therefore i have to hold myself up that's where we layer in certain kinds of muscle tension and those things actually interfere with the natural processes once you switch those things off and just know that you have this upward like internally supporting thing then things become lighter and easier hmm. but yeah i have yet to find consistent ways into properly explaining this and switching on without putting my hand on someone's neck but i i will there will be i will find a way <laughs> yeah yeah that's really helpful because i think um well one i love the description of the flashing because that's something that's definitely the flashing of images and that's definitely something that's come up for me like that that's certainly my experience with the fish new hands for example of like yeah. flashing the image of like the way i want my hands to be in a tai chi form or something uh yeah. and like how not figuring out how to get there but just getting there um and then yeah like exploring why there's upwardness in direct experience because I, and there's a sort of a meta problem with these things of like, and I think it's related to what you're talking about of like providing an image and how like an image can cause someone to go into their head. But like, for me, I've seen again and again where like something can be pointed to by a teacher or a book or whatever, um, or even you have a sense of it internally of like, this should be possible, but then your concept of the thing can get in the way of you actually discovering the thing in your yeah. own experience. And I very, I think that's part of my hesitation with the primary control is like, um, uh, you know, it was certainly the case with expanded awareness or inhibition of like the way in which these things are talked about is just different than my own direct experience of them. And yeah. the metaphors that I would use for my experience aren't the metaphors that someone else would use. And um, so I, I want to, just looking at upwardness in my own experience seems like a pointer to like discovering it in my own experience. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really want everyone to become kind of amateur phenomenologist of their mm -hmm. own experience. Like the fact that I can describe that there's visualization and there's something beneath the visualization. That's just a flashing or activation of it. You're like, yes, I, I know what you mean. I also can't describe it, but it's like, they are different. Yes. That's interesting. That's mm -hmm. the stuff I want to get to. Um, and you said something really interesting there around, around getting stuck in the concept. Uh, I forget how you framed it, but this is a like the main experience people have in training in AT, at least in, in the school I trained in, which is there's different ways in every time, basically. So in one week, it might be, oh, I know what AT is. I know how to get out of this state. It's to try less hard. Okay, cool. That's easy. I've got it. And then the next day, even it's like, uh, okay, try less hard. I was trying less hard. How do I try less hard? Like, oh, I've lost it. Um, and over and over again, you get stuck. The concept works the first time. The metaphor works once and then stops working. And you have to go through a number of these cycles to figure out, I call it the finger. Well, I don't, the Zen people call it the finger that points to the moon is not the moon. You have to go cycle through enough fingers ultimately before you figure out what the moon is. Um, and yeah, like the fact that it works once and stops working is itself part of the journey. I when I was um when I was training I came up with a very annoying definition for the other trainees uh, of what AT is I said Alizan technique is the skill of letting go of what you thought it was <laughs> yeah ultimately because uh -huh. um, like it's that level of meta like as soon as you're stuck in something like believing that it is one way that's not Alizan technique you have to then apply Alizan technique to release yourself from that stuckness 
And I, that one has held, that definition has held for me, but I mm -hmm. can never start there because no one will understand what I mean. If I just <laughs> start by saying that, I need like an hour of preamble before that makes sense. Sure. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. Uh, uh, I think I <clears throat> heard you talking recently about wanting to like do uh, research on the Alexander technique. And I would be curious to hear you talk more about that and what kind of research you might like to do and what that would look like. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, what I want to learn basically is it's going to sound weird, but what AT is ultimately. So I've learned that there is this set of things. I know that they work. I don't know how they work or why they work. And I want to know how they work. Um, because I, despite kind of having a, a lot of kind of a strong tolerance for woo, I still think that things have a, a scientific basis, like that the universe reflects how things work and there must be a, a mechanism by which these things work. I don't know what they are. I'm not sure people, I don't think it is known what they are and I want to know what these mechanisms are. So the research might be stuff like, I'm particularly interested in neuroscience right now. I'm reading a book called The Martian's Emissary, which is excellent. Um, and I think speaks directly to, um, the same stuff. Uh, for anyone who's read it, left, right hemisphere is awareness, left hemisphere is, con is concentration of attention. And I think AT is a way of bringing balance and um, appropriate control between the two, two hemispheres, but that's a different conversation, I think. Um, so neuroscience for one, I want to learn more about the anatomy. So why is it that, okay, this needs a tangent, but it's worth it. Um, in a lesson, the way I, I work now is to, to teach other people who are trained to become teachers. That's the main way I work. And a common way of training, a common experience in the, in the training is they will put their hand on my back and I can't see them necessarily. And they'll do stuff with their awareness and listen for my awareness. And there's a lot of information that can be transferred that way. Now I've done this so many times now that I know it's true and I've had enough testing, but just without even looking at them, I can tell what's happening in their mind just by, by picking up what's happening in my awareness. So if my awareness starts collapsing and I know that it's not coming from me because I've got control over my awareness, I know that their mind wandering, that their awareness is collapsing. I have no idea how this works. <laughs> I have zero clue what's being transferred, what mechanisms are employed here, but I'm very curious. And I was very suspicious at first because, you know, physics, science, like this doesn't seem like it should work. Um, but actually like not only have I done this like for thousands of hours now, but I would say, hey, this is happening to you, isn't it? Yes, it is. Do this instead. Oh, that worked. Cool. How did I know? I don't know how I knew. I just knew <laughs> this kind of <laughs> stuff. And I just want to dig into that ultimately. So what are the what are the biological mechanisms behind it? And how does it interact with other, other systems, if you like? Um, I'm curious if there are links to nutrition even um, and inflammation, for example, like just the, the wider functioning of the human organism. There's a lot to be dug into, I think. Um, and I think the AT field hasn't done enough until now to explore those intersections with other stuff, because if we can, if we can figure out what else is out there and what all the intersections are, then we can figure out, okay, what's the substrate beneath this one and maybe all of them. So is there a kind of uh, a universal theory of everything when it comes to these embodied, um, awareness based things so we can learn from each other and figure out what's actually going on. Because I think each tradition has its own little piece of the puzzle, but no one tradition has all the answers. But I think I'd love to integrate these things together and create something more holistic, if you like. Hmm. Uh, 
sort of a curveball question here, but if say someone uh, extremely wealthy took your course and they liked it and they heard that you're interested in doing research and they're like, blank check, Michael, I'm going to write a blank check. You can do whatever research you want. Uh, what would you, how would you use those resources and what would you apply them towards? I think the first thing I want to look into is the neuroscientific basis behind these things. Mm -hmm. So take a number of AT practitioners and put them in different kinds of scanners, fMRI, that kind of thing, um, and see like what the hell is going on in their brains when um, they they do their thing ultimately. Um, that would be cool. Um, so I suspect that in the same way as the, that, that classic, it's a cliche now, like London taxi drivers have larger, it's a hippocampus because they, they, um, they do so much navigation around London with that map. I think there might be other effects of, I think, I think it's the, the prefrontal cortex on the right-hand side is responsible for inhibition. Um, so preventing um, stimuli from, from progressing, if you like. Um, I wonder if mine's bigger, for example, or I wonder if mine is structured differently because I've been doing this. When, and this AT, this awareness thing is very much a switch. It's kind of off, on. Like it's not a kind of um, build up. It's just like an on off thing. What if I just turn that thing on and off in an in a fMRI scanner? What would happen? I don't know enough about how the scanners work, but there must be some number of tests that you can do on people who have, in the same way as um, they've done this with meditators, right? So this person's been a monk for 30 years, happiest man in the, in the world stuff. What's his brain look like? Well, okay, what does my brain look like? What does someone who's been doing this for 30 years, what does my teacher's brain look like? Um, I'd want to start there and kind of see if there are any clues drawn. That'd be cool, I think. Hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's that's definitely a major interest for me is how this stuff intersects with, you know, Buddhism and meditation mm. and something that we've talked a fair bit about. And uh, yeah. I know you've done also some some Zen practice as well. Uh, which makes you pretty interestingly positioned to sort of at least chew on how these things are related. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think um, increasingly a lot of the things that I'm really interested in are things that nobody's really an expert in, you know, like, yeah, yeah. you know, you know a lot about Alexander technique, but like, um, and there are people that know a lot about meditation, deeply, very deeply practiced, but yeah, like how these things relate, there's no one expert in the world in those things. And mm. uh, yeah, I think that conversations like this are such a powerful way to sort of push the edge yeah. of what we know. And um, yeah, I'd be, anyway, I'd be curious to talk about that with you. And I, I wonder if you have any thoughts just for starters about like how it maybe how your own experience in exploring meditation training and Zen practice relates to, uh, you know, the stuff that you've been exposed to and been teaching with yeah. Alexander Technique. Yeah, it's it's funny how the, the the language of Zen seems very similar to the language of AT in some some sense. Um, when I so I haven't I'm not a, like a, a long term practitioner of Zen. I, I had like a year and a half where I was quite into it, but beyond that, I'm not like it's not part of my life now so much. Mm -hmm. But the the daily life practice, I think Sila practice um, that they espouse is basically give yourself wholeheartedly to whatever you're doing in every moment. 
um, which sounds easy, but is horrifically difficult and often very painful experience. Um, it's like, oh, I'll do the washing up. I don't want to. Oh, no, um, kind of stuff. Um, no podcasts. You can't do that. You have to be fully like, you know, there in the experience. Um, and you encounter the same kinds of things, basically. You encounter all the stuff that you're doing that isn't actually required for the activity you're doing. It's just this layering on of, you might call it ego or self or something of just like, the I don't want to or the, the resistance or that kind of thing. So like say you're doing the washing up, you're doing the dishes. You might find, well, why am I scrubbing way too hard? Why am I like really in here when I'm scrubbing? Like I'm really doing the dishes, you know? Oh, I can, I can zoom out. I can enjoy the moment. I can kind of be in, I can still be fully involved in the dishes while also not cutting off the rest of my life, which is kind of what like just get the dishes done mode looks like. I hate this. This sucks. Get, get it done quickly. Collapsed awareness, muscle tension, this moment of life sucks, that kind of stuff. But you can still bring full awareness and do it and enjoy the moment. Um, I think when, when I was doing Zen practice and I was more involved in AT at the time because of, of like COVID wasn't happening, I experienced a lot more moments of what I suspect is at least related to Kensho, the kind of, this, not enlightenment, but the kind of the flashes of like, oh, actually everything's one thing <laughs> kind of thing. Um, and that I think is only possible because of my AT work. I, I was insufficiently trained in Zen, I think, to deserve that kind of experience. Mm. Um, but the same expansion of awareness and dropping of doing, cessation of doings, seems to point in the same direction as the wholehearted experiencing of the moment type stuff, the turning down of the loops that we get stuck in, basically. Um, I'm rambling slightly, so I'm curious uh, if any of that is interesting that we could pick up on. Oh, it's, it's definitely interesting. Uh, <laughs> it reminds me of, um, I mean, one of the, well, I, I'll just preface this discussion by saying I'm not enlightened. And so like, I am neither an expert in these things either, but it's, it's interesting to talk about. And um, one of the debates that you'll hear is like, are there multiple forms of enlightenment and, you know, some people are like, no. And some people say, yeah, there are a lot of different kinds of enlightenment. Um, and from that, I've, I found it useful in my own practice to sort of think of multiple models for these things mm -hmm. of like what it might look like, because, uh, yeah, just like, so I, I have sort of like a list of maybe like five, six, seven, eight models of like, this is maybe what it's like. And, um, one of them would be that uh, your awareness is sort of permanently expanded, that it, it almost can't contract. Uh, I mean, maybe, I don't know, this is interesting because you, you've sort of demonstrated that you can contract it at will, but like, yeah, that you, it can't involuntarily contract maybe. Mm. Um, and then it is just permanently expanded. And certain, I wouldn't describe my experience currently as it's permanently expanded. I'd say it's frequently more commonly than not expanded, but definitely not uh, permanently expanded or only contracted by will or something mm -hmm. like that. I wonder if that would, uh, yeah, what you think about that as a pot of possible, it, it seems like a worth a worthwhile goal in any case, even if it's not the same as enlightenment or something like that. Yeah, it's funny. What came to mind when you were speaking there was um, Eckhart Tolle, his experience of sitting on a park bench for two years in total bliss mm. um, after he had his, I guess, enlightenment experience. And I'm thinking, mm. I mean, it sounds nice, but not very useful. 
mm. ultimately. Um, I'm not sure I would want that, actually. Um, if that's what enlightenment is and you're kind of just, oh, look, it's so joyful all the time. Mm. Um, I'd like to have access to that when I'm walking down the street through a park, just like, oh, let's have some bliss right now. That'd be nice. Let's have some non-dual awareness and just like everything is me for, for a while. That's cool. Um, but yeah, I guess like being being almost forcibly taken there and then unable to leave it, I'm not sure I'd want that if that's mm. enlightenment. Um, mm. So you, you said kind of unable to contract awareness. I, I want to have conscious control over awareness, I think, mm -hmm. and be able to be expanded most of the time. But sometimes, I don't know if, when I'd want to, maybe I do want to. Um, my, my teacher has a great example of the one time you definitely want to have a collapsed awareness is walking through airport security. Mm. You know, you don't want to be interesting and expanded at that point. You want to be really, really boring, really <laughs> like uninteresting. So I'll just leave you alone, right? And <laughs> that's... You know, I, I can't think of many times in life where I want to turn down my aliveness, but you know, I want that choice. Mm. Um, so, so yeah. Um, that said, though, I mean, I've definitely experienced flashes of that overwhelming, like, unified bliss state that, say, Eckhart Tolle and I think other Enlightenment folks talk to, uh, point towards. Um, but they're never, I'm, I don't live there, if, if that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. Although they are, they are more frequent than I think they used to be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're certainly nice. I wouldn't want to like cling to it though. Uh -huh. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, I mean, that's another sort of model bouncing around in my head is just straightforwardly the reduction of suffering so that there's no, mm. no suffering and um, different definitions of what suffering are, but that would presumably I, I would be more interested in a reduction of suffering that involves like happiness and not yeah. suffering, not. Um, so, but I, I think, I think at this point for me and my practice of this stuff, like it seems like a worthwhile goal to aim towards uh, having my awareness expanded mm. uh, consistently. And uh, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure at that point I could like voluntarily choose to contract or like you know work with it fluidly in different ways but like that the, the default is expanded awareness and i think there's mm -hmm. there's for me at least there's there's more to go before i'm there yes yeah I'd, I'd certainly prefer to live with kind of default open awareness and expanded awareness than default collapsed um just because when you're collapsed it's hard to get out of it if you don't know how you, you kind of forget that you're collapsed um because you're caught in the loop of some kind um when you expand, it's like, oh yeah, there's the loop I was just in. There's that collapse I was just in, and there's everything else I've been missing out on. Um, but it's, I, I don't like using the word awakening. But when you come, at, when like a teacher will kind of show someone, hey, there's all this as well. It is kind of like, oh, I didn't realize I was missing out on all this dimension of the world that wasn't there before. It didn't. It literally didn't exist for them um, because they were closed off to it. And I mean that very directly. Right? It literally wasn't in their awareness. And when something isn't in your awareness, you can't attend to it. It doesn't exist for you. I use very simple examples in my course of like, look, you're in flow, you're doing your work for a few hours, and like suddenly you realize you had to use the bathroom two hours ago. But you were in flow, your awareness was so narrow that you couldn't notice that. And because you couldn't notice that, you couldn't do anything about it. I'd rather have the open availability to like, I, I can do anything, I can go anywhere, I can think any thought, I can feel any feeling. And then I can navigate that world of openness rather than being stuck in a groove that's somewhat 
predetermined almost or somewhat um, set for me by my circumstance and, and conditioning ultimately. It's interesting that you mentioned that because I've, I've noticed recently, I, I've been drawing quite a bit in recent months and cool. drawing is like, I think it's because partly because of my extensive experience with meditation and all of this stuff, but it's, it's like one of the best things I've found for like entering a certain kind of concentration state, like really like mm. flow states, like what you're talking about. It's there sort of, I think there's sort of other axes of like, um, you know, stability of attention or also like uh, bliss in the body. But, mm. um, but in terms of entering like flow states, like you're talking about drawing for me has been just, I so consistently get into a flow state when I draw. And I've also noticed that my awareness does tend to contract when I'm drawing and I, I, I do lose awareness of everything else. And I'm wondering if it's possible in your experience uh, to have that kind of a flow state and have a really expanded awareness. Yeah, I think it is. But one quick question though, on the moment that you come out of the flow state, when your awareness re-expands and like, the spell is broken, do you notice what's going on with your body? Or when you look back, like, what was your body like in that period when you were in flow? Mm. I'd have to check, but my senses, um, I, I tend to have not great posture when I'm drawing and be sort of like, you know, I'm using my iPad and like, yeah. sort of like, um, I don't know, I usually have my like legs folded in some way or something like that. And uh, there's just sort of an emphasis on it. body, body posture is not the emphasis at that time and, and drawing right. is so that, I think that might be a variable. So that's worth paying attention to because mm -hmm. I found that collapsed awareness is correlated with a certain kind of slumping and muscle mm -hmm. tension ultimately. Mm -hmm. So kind of like, you're kind of drawing, I'm exaggerating, but you're like drawing down here or something like really yes. tight and tension and collapsed and, you know, you don't realize you're hurting, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's there's something going on again. I'd love to know more neuroscience than I do. Um, something about how the brain is wired, like it switches off that part of your, you, you need awareness to maintain certain kinds of body functioning. I think when you give yourself like, awareness space, your body can expand into that awareness space and your the primary control stuff, the kind of the light stuff switches on. When that goes away, you're like heavy and, you know, a bag of meat as opposed to a floaty thing, um, ultimately. Um, you had another question that I derailed. <laughs> Where were you going with that? Sorry. Oh, just how is it? Mm, is oh, it yeah, possible so, to be yes. both in a flow state and have expanded awareness? Yeah, that's it. So I think yes, but it's probably more difficult um, and because we're just not used to it. I think this is actually a question I'm getting a lot in, in my forum, which is like, hey, does this mean I can't concentrate? I can't focus on things. I I've lost the flow from expanded. And I think being fair, it is true that if your attention can go to more places, it's more difficult to keep your attention on one thing. So I think the collapse of awareness, the habitual collapse of awareness is kind of like a cope for poor attention control in the sense that if you cut out the world, it's very easy to focus on the one thing that's left in your world. If you expand out, yeah, it can go anywhere. However, I don't believe that's necessary that you have to be that way. And I give two examples in general for context where you might think of flow and awareness. So flow, not flow and collapsed and expanded awareness as like a two by two. Um, so yeah, we all know the kind of like your, your drawing example, your painting is like, yes, I'm, I'm in flow and collapsed. There's not in flow, which is obviously easy as well, 
but there's also a expanded flow. So imagine someone like a, a player on a football team playing a really important match, right? They're definitely in flow for most of the time because it's an important match. They want to win, that they're doing their thing. But they also have wide open situational awareness. They're aware of what everyone else is doing. They're going to catch the ball and throw it that way. All that kind of thing. That is an open flow. Similarly, imagine a martial artist with um, opponents on all sides. Um, and anyone might attack at any time. And if their awareness excludes that guy and kind of goes over here, he'll attack vice versa like you can't cut anyone out but you also can't make an action you have to wait until they are until one of them makes a move then you respond appropriately in the moment spontaneously again that's definitely flow because you're going to be attacked by someone you're fully engaged and committed to the thing but your awareness is like 360 because your situation has to, has to be there so i just think it's more difficult perhaps or it's not something we train particularly well and actually i want to get more into concentration type work meditation because I never actually I don't have good attention control um this is where we've way before AT as well I don't want to suggest that AT caused this I never had good um, control of my attention but I think there's there's value in training attention and awareness as separate things that happen to relate to each other in fun and interesting ways ultimately yeah this is this is giving me some ideas of like sort of things I could try of like yeah, when I am drawing, like expanding my awareness and checking my posture. And then uh, from the other end, like, it's almost like I did a lot of focus for years on the attention mm -hmm. training. And uh, I, I think ideally that would have involved more awareness training than I did as well. Uh, but, you know, I'm sort of catching up now and doing the awareness training with working yeah. on your course. And uh, it seems like almost now um, like a... Mm, learning edge for me with applying this stuff mm. is, can I use that directed attention while having the expanded awareness and, um, you know, do loving kindness or um, mm. do a breathe, maintain a breathing technique or, you know, focus on my body while doing Tai Chi or the drawing, like stay with the experience of drawing and yeah. trying to create a particular thing, but also still have the awareness expanded. So that'll be an interesting edge for me to explore. I think there's a lot there. I think the the expansion of awareness, I think, relates to cessation of doing in some sense. The more expanded you are, the less you're doing. I think collapse corresponds to doing in that sense. So let's say that you're having a conversation with someone and an emotion comes up, right? What are your options? You can either, if your awareness collapses easily, you can either block out the emotion and keep talking to the person, or you can attend to the emotion and block out the person to some extent, neither of which seem optimal to me. But if you can stay expanded such that the person and the emotion and whatever else is there is in your awareness and the emotion kind of like move through you, you have that that sense of detachment, not in a dissociated way. You can be fully experiencing it. And it's very much a kind of a, a meaningful, vivid part of experience, but it's not all of it. It's not hooked to you. So you can like, yeah, this thing is really going on right now. And I'm talking to you and 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 then it leaves because that's how emotions work. It's kind of they're transient, flowy things. Um, this is one of the things I love about Zen is the frame around the taming the bull, gentling the bull thing. It's like the, the Zen thing is grappling with the, the emotional energy. It's not an intellectual thing. It's an emotional, physical thing, like fires in your body, burning you away type thing, rather than thinking about how nice the world is type thing. Um, that for me is AT. It's like fully experiencing the world in all its intensity without getting hooked on it. So that's a fun thing to practice with, I think. 
Yeah, yeah. That's reminding me of just, uh, uh, I think a different way of describing that sort of detachment would be like having equanimity and uh, yeah. the, the, the definition that I always heard, was, which was from Shenzhen, is, uh, you know, not, not uh, getting attached to something, not hold, clinging to things, not grasping to them, and then also mm -hmm. not pushing them away. Uh, so if it's pleasant, you're not clinging to it, trying to keep it. And if it's unpleasant, you're not trying to push it away either. You're just accepting it as it is. And that's not, yeah, that's definitely not like a, like repressive experience. It's a like yeah. liberating one. Yeah. It's hard to describe though. Um, mm -hmm. but it's, uh, I think it's one of the most important things to understand that difference. Um, mm -hmm. so you're not dissociating, you're not kind of repressing things or hiding from things. You're also not pulling towards you in a sense, like make you're kind of reifying them. It's just, yeah, there it is. <laughs> it, it, this is the thing that is there. And my, my teacher's expression for this is like, there it is. And there's everything else. Mm. Like it's all there. And this thing is in relationship to all of it. Cool. Great. Let's enjoy this moment. Um, and just to, it's just coming to my mind. So one of the things that come from the last training session of how the training works is we'd spend like kind of like 10 minutes working with each other and just enjoying the moment. Just like enjoy this moment as a, as a training prompt. And when you put your hand on someone and choose to enjoy this moment, you realize how much you're doing that interferes with enjoying the moment. Like, why am I thinking? Why, why am I obsessing? Why am I worrying about this thing? Why am I blah, blah, blah? Look at all the things I can turn down. And the more I turn things down, the more I enjoy this moment. And actually enjoying this moment and this one and this one is perfectly sufficient. Um, and then you can communicate that state to someone it is a really magical thing to learn that you can do i think um as a just as an experience it's not quite meta but it's like hey i'm just gonna enjoy this moment now cool that that's the thing just enjoy <laughs> yeah. yeah there's um there's a traditional practice of <clears throat> focusing on the the three characteristics or the three marks mm -hmm. of existence which are impermanence uh dissatisfactoriness or suffering and and non-self and then mm -hmm. um I, i've been mostly rob berbea has uh like an extension of that where you can sort he has these other frames that you can sort of um just pay attention to those aspects of your experience and and mm -hmm. one of them is is beauty where you just pay attention to everything that's beautiful nice. in your experience yeah, and yeah. those can be have their own kind of feedback loops as well so that sort of reminds me of what you're talking about yeah, this is what I mean as well, how these things seem to overlap and intersect so much, but mm -hmm. I don't think, I guess I'm, I'm learning in my life that I'm more of an integrator, um, kind of the jack of all trades, and I don't want to go deep in any one thing, but there's so much that we could discover by just like talking to each other and and finding all those things where it's the same. Mm -hmm. um, the whole reason why I started putting stuff on Twitter about AT was not because I wanted to make a course and quit my job and do that stuff, it was that... I wanted to find out other stuff that was AT ultimately, mm -hmm. but I know that I can't ask people that easily or Google, Hey Google, what things are phenomenologically like a Lausanne technique? Um, <laughs> that's not going to work. So if I, if I broadcast the stuff that I think AT is about and like get people interested, other people will tell me, Hey, that sounds like my thing, or that sounds like this thing over here. And that's, I think the best way of building this map of interconnections. Um, and people saying, oh, have you read Impro? This sounds like Impro. Like, oh, okay, mm -hmm. cool. This sounds like the Master's Emissary. This sounds like Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. Blah, blah, blah. This sounds like Orbebea's stuff around beauty. Cool. I would never have known this stuff unless I found a way to be a beacon for some of this phenomenology, or ultimately. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a bizarre uh, superpower that the internet provides, but it's one I plan to plan to exploit as much as I can. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm definitely a sort of jack of all trades, preferring person as well. And I mean, I think I think in this conversation, it's been sort of evidence that like, mm. yeah, I don't think it's actually a strict trade off of like mastery versus exposure or something like that, because I think the more you do kind of get the handle on different things, the easier it is to pick up new things like, um, you know, uh, that, that, that's been my experience is like that these things just like have a momentum of their own. And if, if you learn new things, they're kind of easier to pick up each time. So, yeah, I think so. Um, and I think that's why I think I'm excited for different contemplative type people to get together and talk. Um, you know, what's your phenomenology like? What's your experience with this thing like? <laughs> what dimensions am I missing? Um, why is it that it seems like the Buddhist frame is much more on attention and concentration than it is on awareness? Like, mm. I'm just curious about that. If I go and read a book about meditation, it's like, okay, breath, 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 kind of thing, not world, world, world. Um, why is that? I'm curious, kind mm. of thing. Mm. Um, kind of a rhetorical question. If you have an answer, I'm very curious as to as to why you think that might be that there's been that that preference in that direction um i mean i think mm, that's there's sort of popular buddhism as presented in the west at this time and i don't know why that's that definitely does focus on like breath and body stuff and i think i think that's that's to some extent a mistake it's it's a reasonable I mean, the breath and the body are so powerful, but, you know, I, I prefer to focus on, say, love and kindness, or I think, yeah, expanding awareness is a, is a great um, also thing to be exposed to, or like internal family systems and parts work and stuff like that. Yeah. I think that those are kind of better starting points than the breath or the body. Um, although I think it is good to have just body awareness and breath awareness in practice as well. But but I think in, in Buddhism, historically, there are branches or traditions that would emphasize awareness more than is emphasized in contemporary pop Western mm. Buddhist presentations. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not as exposed to them myself, but yeah, I, th- I think Zen to some extent and, mm. um, you know, things like Mahamudra or Dzogchen, like I, I get the sense, um, you know, I, I've not trained in any of those traditions directly myself, so I can't speak for them, but I get the sense from what I've heard that those uh, would emphasize expanded awareness more than mm-hmm. uh, than you would think from contemporary Western uh, Buddhist presentations. Um, yeah, it's interesting because I don't know how much you know about the thesis of the Master's Emissary. Um, I think you'd love it, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. But the thesis is left hemisphere is attention, right hemisphere is awareness. Very broadly speaking. And that all of society in the Western world has become left hemisphere dominated, ultimately. So we see the world through this rational, analytical, decontextualized, snapshotted kind of thing, 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 thing approach rather than cohesive, integrated, flowing um, relationships, which is what the right hemisphere does. And it would be fascinating to me if the West took a right hemisphere version of Buddhism and turned it into a left hemisphere version of Buddhism which focuses more on the things the left hemisphere does well, like conservation um, over broad awareness. If that, that would be, st- I, I can't prove this, but it'd just be very fascinating if that's kind of the the, the quality of Buddhism in the West is more left hemisphere aligned than right hemisphere aligned. Mm. That would just be fun. 
Interesting. Yeah, I, I've been exposed to it a little bit here and there, but I haven't read the book myself. I, I read his, he has a shorter book that I have read a while oh, ago. Yeah. I Ways forget of the attending, title. I think. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I read that a while ago and that was enjoyable, mm. but um, haven't read that. I think it's, it's a pretty thick yeah. book. Yeah. It, that's probably enough to be honest. So you get the difference between well, the, the, the basics between the two hemispheres. And it's a, it's a 600 page book with tiny mm-hmm. Bible pages and Bible fonts. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, it, it seems to explain a lot. Um, and it does just feel to me that if I, if I made a left hemisphere Buddhism, it would look more like what you're describing of left, the Western Buddhism, as opposed to like dropping some of the, the stuff that doesn't make sense, to the left hemisphere, which is the, the right hemisphere stuff ultimately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It reminds me of, um, I, ha- I haven't read it in full, but there's this author that, um, is talking about Sun Tzu and, uh, he's sort of where this conditions consequences idea that I've talked to you about comes from. And um, I think one of the main claims in that book is that like historically in the West, when Sun Tzu has been presented, it's like there's an overemphasis on the like uh, bits that uh, West, the Western mind can understand. So like, it's just kind of like, um, I don't know, like, sort of reduced to these like bumper sticker type things that's are like not actually that useful out of context. It's like, why does everyone like Sun Tzu so much? But that like, if you have a different frame of mind that's sort of out, outside of mm. the sort of contemporary Western worldview that like, then it is an a- applicable strategy. Or I, I think he was talking about the same thing being true in, in the Tao Te Ching of like, mm. um, you know, it just sounds like, uh, bad poetry or something i don't know but uh if you have this other sort of other state of mind or view of the world then then it starts to make a lot more sense yeah i was thinking about the Tao Te Ching as you were speaking there in the opening lines here the Tao that can be described as not the Tao that can be mm-hmm. named as not the Tao and like this is the same thing as come up in that design technique it's like just tell me how it works just tell me what to be experiencing and like no no i can't do that because if i could describe it it wouldn't be it I can only point towards things that you can then figure out as, oh, it's, that's the Tao, if you like. And as soon as you try and name it, you lose it. <laughs> that makes sense if you have this like broad, integrated awareness, right hemisphere, whatever it is, thing switched on. But the part of you that wants to figure that stuff out can't itself figure it out on its own, <laughs> weirdly enough. Um, and I think the more, it's weird, like... I want to say the more rationally minded someone is, the more difficult it is for them to access this other thing, because that's what the left hemisphere does. And that's what that that frame explains it as. But a lot of my students are, you know, coders, um, and they're very much like traditionally left hemisphere type people. And yet they seem to be like coming to like, hang on, there's something else here. I'm very stuck in my head in my whatever I want to get out of my head. And there's a recognition of it. And that recognition, I guess, can only come from the other bit. Otherwise, it wouldn't it wouldn't know itself. It wouldn't know that there's a thing to be recognized ultimately. And I know, like, I wonder if there's some kind of awakening going on around people seeing that there's a bit more, there's a, a side of experience that's being missed out on and looking for ways to access, ways to figure out what that thing is. Obviously, you come up against the thing that you can't describe it. You can't put words around it or an analytical frame, but you can still make sense of it in a different way. And it's that different way that I think excites me quite a lot. Seems like there's a, a skill of, like if someone points to something without needing to understand it conceptually, like looking for it in your own experience yeah. and, and finding it in your own experience. Um, and I, I wonder what goes into that skill. I, I think I wasn't very good at it for a long time. And then 
I'm noticing just in this conversation, like you've pointed to several things and I'm like, oh, I'm going to go and look for that in my own experience. And it, it feels much more um, tractable now to like look for things with that skill. And I don't, I don't actually know. I mean, some of it I think is just experience and like mm. noticing that you can go look for things in your own experience, but, um, yeah. but, uh, and that they're not the concept or description of the thing, like we talked about earlier, but uh, I'd be curious if, if that reminds you of anything or like what goes into that skill in your experience. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. It's kind of like uh, a meta noticing skill that also comes with not getting stuck in any one of the layers of noticing. Um, so you can kind of like noticing all the way down kind of thing while keeping zoomed out. And I'm reminded of a meditation that was described by um, Alan Watts, um, a walking meditation where he says, you know, there is lifting of the foot. There is the inclination there is the feeling of the lifting of the foot and there is the tendency of the lifting of the ten of the foot and you just go, go down further and further and notice things that are further and further back so there's the feeling there's the desire there's the whatever there's the thing like the fact that i want to there's the fact that i might want not, not to interfere with it and all that kind of stuff and you can just notice these more and more abstract layers i think a lot of people again don't go there and until it's pointed out to you that you can go there why would you unless you're particularly curious about the nature of your own experience. People tend not to be because there's a lot going on, I think. Um, but yeah, once it's said like, you know, go off and play with the, the sensate, go off and play with how you know, like how aware someone else is as a question. Well, okay, how do I know? Okay, what am I, I can, I can analytically look at where their eyes are. I can analytically kind of figure out from what I'm seeing, or I can kind of go inside like, okay, how can I, how can I just know? what someone else's awareness is doing. What are the signs in me? What, okay, oh, that's interesting. Okay, I, my own awareness does things. Um, I feel more connected to them when their awareness expands. Okay, what does that mean? What, is, what does it mean to have more connection with someone? What does that feel like? What are the, what are the phenomenological stuff that goes with connection to, and all of this stuff that goes, goes from there? Um, once you open that rabbit hole, I think there's a lot of fun stuff that just kind of shows up like in life as you're walking around doing, doing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like just having the attitude of curiosity is such an important element of this of just like, well, I, I don't know, but I'm going to look and yeah. what, what is going on here. And uh, that's definitely been one of the most fun, fun things about your course is like noticing just how much there is to get curious about. Like, like one of the things I got really curious about was like, um, you know, um, I do Tai Chi and standing meditation every day. And I usually do them outside because it's, it's preferable to do that or, or I'll dance outside. And in all of those nice. activities, when I'm outside, like I'll, I'll feel, and I've talked to you about this, like I feel people's awareness on me, like, oh, they're, yeah. they're like, what is this guy doing? He's like standing there dancing or whatever. And it's like, how do I, I got really curious. How do I know that these people are paying attention to me right now that they're like, hey, what's this guy doing? Uh, and it, it's like, it's not just, um, a visual field thing of like just mm -hmm. noticing them so like how do i know uh if i so because sometimes i can't see and like someone behind mm -hmm. me i'm like there's someone behind me you know uh looking at me how do i know that and that's been really interesting to get curious about yeah totally and there's i guess two things to say in response to that is like yeah how how do you know that like what okay what are this what are some of the sensations come like how what are the things that you notice that alert you to that sensation to that to that thing going on 
What what are they that I've noticed? Yeah, for me? yeah. So like how like how do you know? What are the things that alert you to this fact for you? Yeah, um, I think for one, I have my expanded my awareness expanded, and for two, I'm I'm sort of aware that the thing I'm doing is something that people might yeah. look at, uh, and I'm aware of sort of the layout of the place and like where people might be. And um, sometimes it seems to be sort of visually triggered of like someone is like walking into my visual field and I'm aware of that, but other times it's not. And I think that there are, uh, yeah, like emotional or physical body sensations that arise that seem to be um, almost like have a location quality to them where it's like telling me that someone from yeah. a certain direction is because I, I, it's like very direction oriented, like this direction, you know? Uh, so that, that's been what I, the sense I've been able to make of it so far, I think. Mm, that's cool. Um, yeah. The, the, um, the experience of the impingement of awareness, someone else's awareness on your awareness is a very real thing. Mm -hmm. um, so this is the thing I, I talk about in the, the, the speaking power of like when someone is collapsing their awareness on you, as I'm trying to emulate now with the, the, the camera, like, there is a thing it feels like to be on the receiving end of this. Yes. Right. This is a little bit aggressive or creepy or intense or whatever. And like you are experiencing something that alerts you to the fact that this is weird. And if I zoom out again, then it kind of goes away a little bit and that thing eases. The hell is that? <laughs> you know, and it's just, it's fascinating that this is a thing that can be experienced. And I think people would benefit from having more sensitivity to this stuff because it's stuff that's going on anyway like if someone's being that way towards you and you're not aware that at the meta level that's what's going on you'll just feel weird you might form opinions about them they might be doing it unconsciously without realizing but you feel ill towards them or you feel like pressured or something but as soon as this stuff becomes in your awareness as like a meta level then you can like okay i still feel the thing but i'm also like aware of what's causing it and i can take measures to defend myself against it um I also just want to say, like, when we're talking about stuff like, you know, I can tell when someone is looking at me type stuff, we very quickly get into the realm of, um, well, that can't work, can it? Scientific, um, rational, like, I don't know the mechanisms by which this could work, therefore it can't work, kind of, kind of thinking, which is kind of how I used to be. Now I'm a little bit more flexible with this stuff, like, okay, look, I know about confirmation bias. I know about all the all the failings of the human mind in, this, in a sense. But at the same time, I've been testing the same kind of dynamic processes enough times now in different settings that I know that something happens when something else happens. Ultimately, I know what it feels like quite reliably. I just don't know how it works yet. So I assume there is some mechanism behind these things. And I'm curious what they are. But I don't want to throw out the fact that this thing is real just because I can't think of a mechanism by which it could work, if that makes sense. There's some kind of like holding a paradox in there. Definitely. I mean, that's um, my own orientation towards these things is like putting my own experience at the forefront. And when you do that, when you put your own experience or reality at the forefront, like your explanations for what's happening are very impoverished compared to the actual experience. Um, all kinds of things happen to me in my experience mm. that like, not only do I not have explanations for it, but a lot of them, like, I, like, I could could describe them verbally, but it would take me far longer 
to describe them verbally than it than it would to just experience the thing. And um, yeah, I don't know. Had, like one thing that comes to mind is at least for me associated with this kind of phenomenon is like it, it certainly seems to me that um, when you have this sort of experience of someone else's awareness in, interacting with your awareness. Uh, that there's sort of a, um, a, you can get like a read on what their experience mm. is like, that there's sort of like leakage of what emotions there are, totally. like what their thoughts are or what it's like to be them or how their body feels or things like yep. that. Um, has that been your experience as well? Absolutely. You can tell a lot from, it's, it's a combination of yes, seeing things. Like if someone looks tense and tight, you can kind of infer things, but there's also a kind of like a, an energetic feel as well mm -hmm. like just being around it's like oh this person feels heavy in some way okay and then you get the same question like in what way how do i know this feels heavy like what mm -hmm. am i feeling that and you can kind of go down that route as well but yeah there's something about <sighs> something else knows things beyond the rational mind i guess mm -hmm. i'll put it that way and mm -hmm. then it it get that that rational mind thing gets signals from somewhere else and interprets them but there's, there's danger in cutting off from it so you can look at someone like, yeah, this person seems heavy, this person seems sad. I don't know how I know that, but you know, more often than not, that assessment is correct. That intuitive sense is right, mm -hmm. um, and that that really interests me, honestly. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. like that's that's all. Like, still don't believe it fully. Like, okay, like I have a sense this person is stressed or heavy or sad, but let's test that. Mm -hmm. But I'm still going to use that information as something that could be true. Yes. Right? There is something here around people often ask me, well, like, isn't it useful to signal things in social contexts, right? So if I if I give an example, like, I can think, right? I'm thinking really hard right now. And I'm showing you that I'm thinking, <laughs> or I'm, I'm going to think. I'm thinking right now. But you can't tell that I'm thinking. Because I'm not doing the thinky stuff. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So like, people say, well, isn't there value in you know, signaling the fact that I'm thinking so they don't interrupt you or whatever, like may, maybe, but wouldn't you rather consciously do that performatively if you want to, as opposed to using muscle to make your brain work better, which it doesn't do. It just gets in the way because what, what is this? <laughs> <You know>? uh, <laughs> so like, I think people leak stuff in that way. They leak stuff by layering on all the things that it looks like to experience their lives internally without realizing they're doing it. And that's what I think oftentimes we pick up on. So if I'm thinking, if, if we were both like ATs and master people and both like thinking without expressing thinking, it might be harder to figure out that yes, they're thinking, right? But still, I'd rather be that way than stuck in, in performative signaling, ultimately, mm -hmm. or unconscious performative signaling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. Yes. I sometimes on this podcast, like people have trouble reading me because I'm just like yeah. listening attentively to what people have to say, you know, uh, yeah. so uh, I've had to like work on emoting again, you know, uh, but um, that, that might just be a personality quirk too, though, easily. But um, it's something that I've noticed with this is like the, of this, like having awareness of other people's experience or mm. a, a read on it is like, uh, at least to me, it seems like I tend to be aware of things in other people's experience that I have experienced for myself in my own mm. experience in the past. And, and it interesting, like, it's like, 
because I have the self-knowledge of this kind of thing in my own experience, then I can notice it or recognize it in other Mm -hmm. people. And there's been an interesting thing with that of like, I guess when I first started noticing that this sort of thing was possible, I was sort of like aversive to it because I was like, oh, what are other people going to know about me? Like, oh, like, for example, like, is Michael judging me right now? Because my awareness is contracted and like, is he going to think I'm a terrible person or something? But like, at least for me, as that sort of unfolds in my own experience, there's compassion associated with it. Because like, if there is something that I notice about someone else, and even if it's negative, it's like, that's nothing I've never seen in my own mind. Like, you know, uh, I, I'm not recognizing things in other people that I've not experienced myself. And so mm-hmm. there's not like a divisive, like, oh, this person is terrible. They're worse than me kind of thing. It's like, I, f- I feel compassion for them of like, wow, like I've been there and like, that makes sense. And it's easier to hold it sort of lightly than like judgmentally or something like that. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, and I think what comes up for me when you were talking there is that this expanded awareness thing come brings with it a sense of being seen Mm. right so like if you're expanded that means and i'm I'm going to speak a little bit whether metaphorically or literally i'm not sure but let's just let's go with it um when you when you let's say blend your awareness with someone else like you're in the same awareness space you are suddenly aware of them looking back at you you're suddenly aware of being seen as someone who has the same kind of experience as someone else is having Mm. like so right now I'm looking at a lens, I'm looking at your face on the camera, on a screen, and like, yeah, you're, you're pixels, you're a human, cool. But inside of your head, you're having the same experience of me as I'm having of you right now. Mm-hmm. And if I cut myself off from you, I'm like, yeah, I'm talking to some pixels and like, I just seeing you as, as I'm just seeing you as pictures, cool. Oh shit, now you can see me, like actually see me. Like, it's like you're, you're seeing into my experience in a sense. And that's scary at first. It's much easier to, to kind of talk to pixel tashi than it is to talk to like this the thing that i'm experiencing in the world experiencing me tashin yeah <laughs> so i'm like ah oh, okay there's a level of like okay let me just like there's a kind of uh i think reich talked about this like character armoring or like turning like stepping through that character armor and like allowing yourself to be with someone being seen means that yeah they might see your your flaws they might see your the things that you don't like about yourself chances are they'll look at you with compassion um if they're the kind of person who's used to doing this at least mm-hmm. then sure but you are you are kind of putting yourself out there to be seen in a much more a much deeper way than if you you know cut yourself off and cut awareness off and that kind of thing like now I'm, i feel protected i feel like there's an armor here there's a shell but i can't i'm not connecting to you whereas if i connect to you it's a little bit vulnerable there's, a, there's something that opens up there like you can kind of see into me in some sense mm. and again mm. there's that question of like how do i what does it feel like how do i know that that we can kind of play with as well which is interesting mm-hmm. but i love this stuff as well yeah it's really cool i'm really grateful that this is primarily a video podcast because there's just so much <laughs> happening in your in this interaction i'm sure yeah. on my face as well that there's like a lot of layers that just make it really visually interesting Speaking uh, of video, I'm quite dark here because it's the UK and it's cloudy, so let me just put uh, some lights on. <laughs> yeah, great. <laughs> Looks good. Um, and, you know, and, and something I had to learn with this stuff is like, it, it was uncomfortable to realize that other people can see more about you than you were aware previously, but like, yeah. that's already happening. You know, like we're already putting out all of this information in exactly. the world. Like it's not, there's no, there's no, 
I don't even know how to put this, but like concepts of privacy are not what you thought they were or something like there's, yeah. that, that's like uncomfortable, but, but, but it's true. Like you, when you have a face, you know, people can see things about your face or your body or that just are there. And uh, it doesn't help to like fight that just because you, I don't know. I, I, I think I was maybe clinging to a notion of privacy at some point or something. Like, I just want to be me, <laughs> uh, you know, whatever, yeah. but. I, I know what you mean. Um, and actually just like, even in this context, right, there's, we're being recorded mm -hmm. and like, I can only see you, but you're recording on both screens at once. Right. So mm -hmm. I've forgotten almost that I'm, I'm being recorded in a mm -hmm. sense. And it's a very interesting experience to be talking to someone in a conversational, yeah, hanging out kind of way, while also knowing that like all of your facial expressions are being captured for someone to watch. So like, hey, person watching, like, I know you've been looking at my face the whole time or Tashin's face. And like every little twitch, every little like gesture, every little like, so I rub my nose or like, I don't know, have a drink and then like, whatever, like those things become much more aware. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm being seen right now. Mm -hmm. There's two ways, okay, you can either cut away from that or you can embrace it. I feel like most of us kind of default to that, that privacy thing that you're talking about. Like if I just, if I just forget that they're looking at me, then they can't see me ultimately then I'm not being seen. There's that wonderful um, creature in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where if it assumes that if you can't see it, then it can't see you, <laughs> which is mm. absurd, but that's the point. So the, the advice is wrap a towel around your head so that you can't see it, <laughs> then it can't see you. <laughs> and it kind of feels like that a little bit. <laughs> like, it's okay. If I can't see Tashin, he can't see me. So it's fine. We can feel safe now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. We, we do, we do silly things. And so much of AT again is like, look, we mean this lovingly. We mean this kindly, but most people are doing silly things to themselves. They don't know them doing the classic example that like, this is a very silly one, but like, look, you've seen this like tourists doing this in, um, I don't know if I just make sure I can see myself so I don't get off the, off the screen, but like taking a photo, but like this, yeah. you know, how you kind of people like lean back to get uh -huh, more, uh -huh. like get more of the thing in frame, like just take a step back. Uh -huh. why, 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 why are you doing all this nonsense? Yeah. Like people don't realize that they're abusing themselves in some sense when they could have a much simpler, more elegant, easier alternative to do. Mm -hmm. We just have all this conditioning that we don't have matter awareness of, or don't know how to stop. It's so much of this going all the time. Yeah. 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 It's, it's hard to notice. Um, I mean, anytime I'm in with other people, really, I, I can notice now if their awareness is contracted or yeah. expanded and it's it's hard to notice how how often people's awareness is contracted and uh yeah that that makes me sad sometimes yeah yeah it it is again i try to avoid the judgment but it mm -hmm. does kind of come up like oh it must it seems like it's difficult to live that way and i used to live this way myself right i spent almost 30 years um kind of trapped in my own i want to say my own body but like slightly out of sync from the world, living in a projection of my thoughts, describing the world rather than the world itself. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think all of these practices get us out of. It's whether it's AT, whether it's other mindfulness traditions, it's like, okay, well, all that's going on. And there's the world as well. Look, hey, it's so shiny and vivid and bright. Cool. There's all these things that you can experience. But until that's been shown to you in some way, and you're, again, that word I don't like, but awakened to it, then it's just not accessible and i i want to help people i don't think everyone should live that way 
I want them to have the option to if they want to. That's important. Mm-hmm. If you if you have if you're shown the Zen Garden and like this is there's this thing here, I don't want it. Fine, good for you, more power to you. Great. But at least have someone show you it's there. Mm-hmm. And then explore it if you want to, right? Yeah, definitely. That, uh, that's why I'm so glad that your course exists, especially because it's structured in a way that can sort of scale, like you don't have to yeah do it i can figure certain things out but yeah yeah (laughs) yeah other always always learning you know um yeah i'd I'd be one one question i'd be curious to ask as well is um yeah like how how your vision of how this stuff relates to society is Mm because a lot of this that we've talked about is like individual experience or like interactions with others but i know you've sort Mm -hmm. of alluded in places to this having possibly broader civilization scale implications and be curious to hear you riff on that yeah this is something i keep sitting with um but there's, there's something here i want to integrate all this energy stuff with the non-doing stuff but there's, there's mm-hmm. two things i think that come to mind here one is that cessation itself is a thing that can be done because people often like often confuse not doing something with the opposite of that thing right so if i use an example from the real world I think it would make sense to stop subsidizing fossil fuels, right? We know they're not good. We know that if the market does its thing, then things will realign. So let's say, okay, I propose we stop subsidizing fossil fuels. That's cessation. It's very, very easy and a quick answer to then go, okay, what should we do instead? Like nothing, no, 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 no further doings required. Just stop doing that, <laughs> right? That's enough. And then see how the system recalibrates itself in the absence of this forcing thing that you're putting into it doesn't mean you have to go and put that money into other programs. Just stop doing this and see what happens. Okay. I don't think we're good at that as a, as a species even. We're so like conditioned to do something that the idea of not doing something breaks us in some sense. It just doesn't occur to us um, that they're very different interventions. Um, so like when I was saying here, like slou- this, this is slouching. The absence of slouching is not this. This is still slouching, just more upright. <laughs> this <laughs> is the absence of slouching. And <laughs> that's, that's different. They're, they're different things. Yes. Um, so that's one thing I'd like to see more. More. It's almost more of a Taoist perspective as, as applied to civilizational progress of like the minimum level of interference necessary, I think, is the way to go. So all the things, imagine that there's like some kind of supercomputer like that could catalog all the thing, all the doings that we're doing. What's the minimum level of doings that we can do, if you like, for things mm-hmm. to function well? I, I suspect that the less that we can do intelligently and you know, clearly you know, thoughtfully, the better things run. I think things get stuck when we're like, hmm, this thing is over here isn't working very well. Let's layer in another doing, <laughs> right? Let's add more doings. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you end up with this massively overcomplicated system that's fragile and can break easily. I'd rather have fewer doings and see what happens. So that's one thing that comes to for climate change in particular is yeah, we can do things, but okay, what else can we stop doing? Mm-hmm. The other thing that came to mind when um, when thinking about this intersection is the idea that if something isn't in your awareness, it's not accessible to you. You can't relate to it if it's not in your awareness. And I think that as a as a civilization, we are lacking for our awareness doesn't extend to certain futures or to certain pathways. So I I, I think I alluded to it before, but when I say awareness, I don't just mean spatial awareness, I mean, conceptual, awareness, conceptual space, possibility space, and also the body stuff as well. So 
in the absence of knowing that we can go a certain direction to the future, we can't go there, right? We, we can only go to the place that we can conceptualize. So we are lacking stories, ultimately. So I think a really important thing that we should be doing is telling lots and lots and lots of diverse, positive stories for the future, all kinds of different good stories. And what we end up with won't be any of those, but it'll be more in the direction of those things than all the bad stories we're telling ourselves. If we keep repeating the same, we're going to burn in a fiery hell stories, we're going to nudge ourselves towards that because that's what we're orienting ourselves towards. So yeah, I, I would like to see more basically possibility space opening up for how we think, how we want things to be that will actually help us orient ourselves towards those things. So mm. these, are, these are two areas that I think AT applies. And then at the individual level, like the more people are free of their own conflicts and interfering less with their bodies and functioning well, which is what AT is about, I think, well, it makes sense that society is made of individuals. And if those individuals are in some sense not functioning well, then the society that they're, they're comprising won't function well either. So the more that we can resolve our own stuff, the better the system we're a part of will function as well, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with all that. And I, I know you were talking earlier about the, the climate stuff and it made sense like that there'd be all these different options and that you'd have mm -hmm. awareness of them, possibility spaces, you described it. And I love that you sort of uh, made that explicit and added in the the non-doing, like, oh, we could just stop doing certain things yeah. that aren't working for us. That, that is a novel <laughs> idea there, my friend. That is a novel idea. But that shouldn't be novel. That's the yes. thing. But yes. it, is, it is like mind-blowing. We can just not do things. And then, yes. then what? No, no, no. Just, just, stop, <laughs> just stop. Just stop doing the thing. Uh -huh. Yeah. Michael Ashcroft for president, 2024. <laughs> yeah. No. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. 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 Uh, I think I have to become American first, but yeah. <laughs> you're like, I'm not going to do anything. Yeah. Global yeah, world nothing. leader, I will do nothing. Exactly. I'm going to do less and less and less <laughs> until things work better. Yeah. I love it. Where Where do I sign up? Yeah. Uh, is there anything uh, close to you, anything that we've talked about that you'd like to say more about or talk more about? I don't think so. I mean, I'm impressed that we've gone for two hours and I'm not mm -hmm. bored and like it still feels like a very fresh and, and like lively conversation. So yeah, thanks. Thanks to your obvious skill as a, as a podcast um, podcast host and interviewer that like it just flowed so well. So yeah, thank you for having me on. Mm, my pleasure. And I'm hoping we'll do it again sometime. There's definitely more to, more to discuss. Yeah. I suspect we will. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you, Michael. Good. Thank you.